Hey, I get to say good morning twice. Good morning, church. It's good to see all of you, and some of you, it's good to see you for the first time. Um, gosh, worship, incredible, powerful this morning. Thank you, worship team. Thank you for leading us into the throne room and just for worshiping together and getting our hearts set right. Um, for those of you who don't know, my name is Kendrick, and I'm the pastor here at Calvary Church, and we're going to continue uh, our walk this morning through the Gospel of John. Uh, last week, Pastor Tim, he looked at chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. It was a conversation between Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and Jesus, uh, the conversation was about how to be saved. Right? Jesus is telling the, the religious leaders of the day, right? You, you do see the irony in that, you see the humor in that, that Jesus is sitting down with a well-respected, uh, a teacher of the law, somebody who knows the law, and Jesus says, hey, you don't really know what you're talking about, so let me tell you what the law is. And we have John chapter 3, and you guys spent some time in that. Jesus even says at the beginning, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? He's talking about the things that he was to be teaching about. And as funny as that is, that Jesus goes to religious leaders, the experts, and tells them how to be saved, this chapter that we're going to look at today, chapter 4, is meant to get your attention. You guys go ahead and open up your Bibles, click on John chapter 4. This is a, uh, another time that should catch your attention. It should make you sit up a little bit straighter. Last week, just as Jesus taught Jewish leaders how to be saved, in this passage, Jesus has a conversation with a Samaritan woman. Right, Jesus is at the woman at the well, and his topic with a Samaritan woman is who can be saved. Many of you are familiar with this story. Jesus is on his way from Judea to Galilee. And on his way, he passes through Samaria. We know that Jews and Samaritans did not get along. They, they weren't friends. There's a long history between these two groups. It goes much deeper than just uh, not liking each other. It goes back hundreds and hundreds of years after the Assyrians captured Samaria in about 722, 721 B.C., they took all of the educated leaders. They took all the Israelites that were business leaders, political leaders, all the teachers, the well-educated ones. They took them and they moved them. And then they settled the land with foreigners. They brought foreigners in who intermarried with the remaining Israelites. And before long, the, the foreigners and the Israelites that remained, they started perverting their worship they started worshiping some of the ancient gods of the pagans who had moved in there. They started mixing up their form of worship. They started including things that were not pleasing to the Lord. About 400 BC, the Samaritans actually erected a rival temple on Mount Gerasim to, to rival the temple that was in Jerusalem. It was eventually destroyed, but the Samaritans kept their focus of worship on Mount Gerasim. They kept worship there. That was a object of their worship. That was somewhere they would gather and worship. And again, it was in competition. It was rival. It was our worship, our gods are better than yours, Jerusalem. And by the first century, the Samaritans had developed their own religious heritage, continuing to focus their worship not on Jerusalem or the God of the Israelites, but on Mount Gerasim and on their own ancient gods that they had incorporated into their worship. And Jews viewed the Samaritans not only as children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds, right, whose religion was tainted by a whole bunch of unacceptable elements of worship, a strange fire, 
And this combination of events fueled religious and theological animosities for generations. For centuries, these two groups had been enemies, and in the eyes of the Jews, the Samaritans were beyond the hope of God. God would not reach out to them. God would not save them. They were the lowest of the lows. They were out of the reach of the grace and the mercy of God. However, as we read this passage, I want you to notice who Jesus has a conversation with who can be saved. There's a lot said just in the title. She is a Samaritan, right? It talks about the Samaritan woman at the well. She is a Samaritan. She is a part of the arch enemies of the Jewish people, of the Israelites. Samaritan woman. She is a woman. In the first century, a rabbi would not, uh, a respectable rabbi would not talk to a woman, much less a woman with a questionable past, especially if they were alone. We know this woman was married five times and that she was living with another man. We don't know the reasons why she was married five times, but we can tell by the way that she is treated as an outcast by her community. They probably weren't good reasons. And as you read commentaries on this passage, history has not been kind to this woman. She is referred to as a homewrecker. She's referred to as a hussy, a woman of the night, a gold digger. Pastor Vernon McGee noted that one of the reasons she was not so popular with the woman of the town was because she was too popular with the men of the town. And don't miss the irony of this passage. Just like it didn't make sense for the Jesus to go and teach a religious leader how to be saved, it should catch your attention that Jesus is having this conversation with this immoral Samaritan woman, an outcast, the very picture of someone who can't be saved and Jesus sits down and has a conversation with her and tells her who can be saved and as we look at this chapter today we're going to look at the conversation that Jesus had with this woman we're going to learn and look at who can be saved and then we're going to look at the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples after his conversation with the woman too many times we we read the conversation we read about the woman at the well and we stop and we save the other part for another day But as we look at this, I believe that Jesus had to talk with the woman at the well so he could teach his disciples a lesson. And today we're going to be looking at that lesson. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead with me. Chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 1. We're going to read about half of this chapter right now. I'm going to begin in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become to him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we, do, what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when tr- the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is a, a, a theologically loaded passage. Right? There is so many things in here that we could spend, not just hours, we could spend weeks and years, and there's been libraries of books written on some of the truths found in this passage. Right? That Jesus is the Savior who gives eternal life. Right? That eternal life is found in him not in a place or not in things. We see in this passage that Jesus is the Savior and he is God and that all worship should be directed towards him, not to a place. But today I want to focus on another aspect of this. I want to focus on what Jesus is focusing on when he's talking to this woman. He's talking to her about who can be saved. Jesus is the Savior of who? Who did Jesus come to save? Who did he come to offer his grace and salvation to? And so this morning, I want to wrestle with that question, who can be saved? As we read this passage, it's very clear that Jesus is talking to a woman from Samaria. Right? In the first nine verses alone, six times Samaria is referenced, either as a place or as this person being a Samaritan. Right? Samaritans, as we've already covered, they're the worst enemies of the Jews. Jews consider them second-class humans, if humans at all. They were half-breeds. They had taken the Jewish customs, traditions, and cultures and mixed them with the surrounding traditions and religions. They had distorted the Jewish way of life. They had profaned the name of God. If, any of the world, if anybody in the world could not be saved, it was these people. If anybody in the world was not loved by God, it was these people. No self-respecting Jew, especially a rabbi, would be caught dead talking to a female Samaritan by themselves in the middle of the day. Yet Jesus initiates the conversation. Yet Jesus reaches out to her knowing full well everything about her. Knowing who she is and where she came from. Knowing her past and her history. And Jesus initiates the conversation. And as we continue reading, 
We learn not only is she a Samaritan, she's someone with a questionable morals, a lifestyle that has caused her to be an outcast, even among the Samaritans. Humans have this amazing ability to always find and make somebody less than who they are. To find somebody that they can focus their, their anger on, to focus their distortions on and say, well, at least I'm not that person. And here we see the Samaritans do this. I was just talking to a friend of mine last week who was working in the slums in Guatemala. And he was describing the, the poverty that was there. There was homes that were made out of soggy car- cardboard. There was rodents that would run around. There was piles of, of feces and human waste all around the, ho- the town and all throughout this little shanty town. And he saw this little girl that was walking between the homes. And as she was walking, she ran into another little girl who was playing outside her house. And they started to play together. When the mom came out and picked up the little girl and shooed the other one away, saying, she's dirty, she's dirty, stay away from her. And she shooed off that little girl. And this Samaritan woman that Jesus is speaking to at the well is that little girl who was shooed off by the other peasants. She is the lowest of the low. And as I told you, we don't know why she was married five times. We don't know why that they died. But here's the the, the point of the story. If this was another sermon, we could probably start talking about that the blessings, right, the rewards for marriage are not the same as just living with somebody, but there's actually some blessings and rewards and benefits of actually being married. But Jesus is using this situation to describe her life situation to describe actually some sinful behavior in her life. And what he's doing at this is he's building the case for her immorality, for this woman that he is talking to that we all know who this lady is. And the point is, is that he's letting us know that she is an outcast even among the Samaritans. To the Jews, she is the lowest of the low. Yet as we read that passage, Jesus initiates conversation with her and then offers her living water. And he's not talking about quenching her physical thirst. He's talking about giving her true life, eternal life that only he can give. Eternal life that only comes from the Savior. He uses the the very person that no Jew would say could be saved to share the truth with of who could be saved. Jesus sits down with her and says everyone can be saved. You can be saved. I offer you the grace that comes with knowing God. And then as we continue to read, we see that Jesus starts to get personal with her. Right? He moves to the depths of her heart. He looks her in the eye and says, I know you. Right? I know the things that you are struggling with. I know the sins that you are dealing with. And as soon as he does that, what does she do? She does the same thing we all do when Jesus gets personal with us. Right? She starts deflecting. Like, hey, let's look at that person over there. Or, or, hey, let's talk about the hot topics of the day. She's talking about the mountain and, and the ancestry. And she's talking about this and that. Like, let's get off my heart. Let's look at these other things. And that's the same thing we do when Jesus looks at our hearts. Right? When he confronts us with the sin in our own heart, we deflect it to the hot topic of the day. When God says, hey, Kendrick, I need you to deal with this sin in your life. I'm quick to say, well, God, let's talk about God's sovereignty and man's free will for a minute. Let's talk about what's appropriate church attire. Let's talk about worship songs and what we should and shouldn't sing in church. 
but just like with this woman, Jesus stays on target in our hearts. He doesn't let us wander. He keeps us focused on what's, he said, I don't want to talk about those things. I want to talk about you. I want to talk about what's on your heart. And he says, God is looking for those who worship in spirit and truth. And God is spirit, so we must worship him in spirit. And God is truth, and so we must worship him in truth. And there's many ways in scripture that tell us how to worship God, how to glorify God. But the one thing that we always like to leave out is it includes us coming before him, not only with true doctrine, but also with our true selves, on who we are, right? He wants us to come to him with broken and repentant hearts, seeking his grace in our lives because he knows that we need it. Right, when we worship him in truth, we know that he knows us. We know that he is sovereign. He knows the deepest and darkest parts of our hearts. And we come to him in contrite hearts, begging for his grace and his forgiveness. We know that he can save us. And it is that truth in our lives that leads us to worshiping him. Right, when we bring our true selves to the true Jesus, we experience true worship. Right, when we bring our true selves to the true Jesus, we experience true worship. And Jesus knows this woman. He knows her through and through, and he knows the deepest and darkest parts of her heart. But he sits down with her and offers her living water. See, some of us think we have to get our lives right before we can come before Jesus. Because if he really knew us, he would never accept us, right? If he really knew us, there's no way he would ever be seen with us. If Jesus really knew who I was at this moment and at this time, there is no way he would offer us living water. That's something we make up ourselves. The Bible doesn't teach that, right? The Bible teaches the exact opposite of that, that we are to come as we are, like this woman at the well, broken. Jesus went to this woman, and he offered her living water. He offered her his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. He offered her life. Church, the, the whoever in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Right, that whoever is everyone. And the whoever in John three thirty six, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. That whoever is everyone. Everyone, the only condition, and Tim was focused on this last week, the only condition is belief. Whoever really means whoever. Whoever really means everyone who believes in him can be saved. Even the immoral, unclean, lowest of the low, Jesus meets them, interacts with them, and gives them living water. Jesus meets with them, interacts with them. Jesus initiates Jesus initiates, I love you, here is life. And you think, well, I'm too bad. I, 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 Jesus would never have anything to do with me. And then there's others that think, well, I'm not that bad. Right, like, I'm not Jesus, but I'm not the worst sinner in the world, and that's good, because Paul, he claimed to be the worst sinner in the world, and 
Guess what? He planted churches all over the Roman Empire, was the world's uh, leading disciple maker of not only his time, but every time since. God used him to write half of the New Testament. I'm sure you're not that bad, right? How would you like to fit into that category and be looking down at Paul and say, God's never uses me more than he has used Paul. I say, yeah, there's somebody worse than you. Paul said he was. And God used him. And God offers that living water to all who believes. And this is important for us all to hear. Right? It's important for us all to know that he gives us living water that we might find life in Jesus. But it is just important for disciples of Jesus to hear this. To know that Jesus saves whoever believes. Right? He doesn't just save the people that are like us or that we have in this little category in our minds. Jesus is the savior of the world and saves all who believes. I want you to look at what happens next. Picking up in verse 27. And just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. No one had said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. Now I want you guys to to pay attention here. This sets the, the, the stage for one of the most overlooked teachings that I think Jesus did. Let's continue in verse 31. It says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So just like the living water, God is using a metaphor. And in this one, he's using the, the metaphor of eating. Right? He didn't have like a falafel tucked in his, in his gown. Right? He was talking about uh, doing the will of God and being obedient to what God is telling him. This is a spiritual talk. It's a metaphor. Jesus liked to use food metaphors. That's why Jesus and I get along so well. I like food. And, and I'll tell you, in, in this passage on, on my Sabbath, and we talk about Sabbath, my Sabbaths that I take with my wife often revolve around where we're going to eat lunch. So we plan on our food. We say we're going to have a good meal. We're going to glorify God. There's nothing like a tasty meal that leads me to worship. So I get a tasty meal, I get time with my wife, and then we kind of build the Sabbath time in worshiping God around that. And here we see Jesus is, is comparing this to a meal, to being in the will of God and to worshiping. And then we continue in verse 35. And Jesus says, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here is the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And I want to, to imagine at this point in the story as they're traveling they come back to Jesus at the well the woman has left they know that they're going back to Galilee they know that they're traveling with Jesus they're going back to their hometown they're anticipating that excitement the the satisfaction of doing God's will and offering living water and all that comes with that to their family 
They're talking about, hey, we know the Messiah. This is something as young Jewish men we've been looking to, and they've been looking to it for generations, and we have him, so they're already imagining that party and that celebration that's going to happen when they get back to their homes and their relatives and the other Jews in Galilee. And Jesus tells them that there's going to be many people whose hearts are ready to receive and follow Jesus as their Messiah. And they're eagerly anticipating this celebration. Right? If, if Jesus came down and said, hey, we're going to go to, you name the town. You name the area. We're going to go to Tarzana. And there's going to be a celebration as thousands come to know Christ. We would walk out of these doors and go straight to Tarzana and be, join that celebration. We would be a part. And Jesus is telling them this. Right? We're only in verses 38. We haven't gotten to verse 44 where Jesus gives them truth and says that there's no prophet, has no honor in his hometown. And at the end of this chapter, we see Galileans are still demanding signs from Jesus to prove that he is the Messiah. They haven't believed. They don't believe that he is. This reality hasn't set in. Right? It's nice. It's nice to have hindsight. It's nice to have 20-20 vision. But sometimes it can kind of take away from the narrative. Right? So as we're looking at this narrative, we can see this excitement. Right now, Jesus is giving one of the most motiva- best motivational talks of all time. He's working their hearts. He's getting them excited. Right? The fields are ready. I just need you to be obedient to do what God has called you to do. I just need you to be obedient to share the love of Christ, to talk about the Messiah. Right there, they're getting excited. They got a journey ahead of them, but they're, they're singing that old proclaimer song, like, I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more, right? Just to share the love of Christ, I'd walk 1,000 miles. Da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. Some of you have heard this song, right? So they are pumped up. This is so exciting. This is like before you go on a, a missions trip, right? These guys are built up. The excitement of doing God's will is overflowing everything about them. They are ready to go, right? Then he says, right, the fields are white, right? And he looks over his shoulder and he signals to the Samaritans that are coming towards them, right? The villagers from Sychar are coming towards him. I want you to look at this picture up on the screen. Can you just imagine the afternoon sun, right, reflecting off these Samaritans? This is a picture of modern-day Samaritans worshiping. This is their traditional garb that they have worn for hundreds of years. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, the fields are what? The fields are white and ready for harvest. And can you imagine him looking behind and you see the Samaritans coming up to the field. You see the Samaritans that the woman had gone to share with. They are now coming to Jesus. They are coming to worship. Can you just imagine the sun and the fields that are white and they're ready for harvest? And Jesus points at them. It's right. It's, it, the harvest is ready now. You don't have to go to Galilee. It's right here. It's right where you stand. There's people's hearts who are ready to know Jesus. There's people's hearts who are ready to know him as the Messiah. There are people right here ready to drink the living water. I, Jesus says this, not Kendrick. Jesus says, I am the Savior of the world. Right? I'm not just the Savior of your friends. I'm not just the Savior of Galilee. I'm not just the Savior of Jews. I am the Savior of the world. 
Because you remember that the woman, she went back and she told the town about this man, this Messiah that she met that knows him. And if we continue, John tells us in verse 39, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Right? She said, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. We have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Right? Their faith, and they heard Jesus. They heard his word, and they believed. Here's a Bible study. Here's some homework for you this week. I want you to look at the Samaritans that heard the word and believed, and I want you to compare it with the leader in Galilee that still demanded a sign. Find out where your heart is. Find out where you are. That's homework. But for right now, as Jesus talks to his disciples, as they see the Samaritans, Jesus says, look, the fields are they're white and they're ready. Maybe not the fields that you're thinking of, right? Because sometimes we unintentionally try to determine our fields and thinking of those who are most like us. We're hoping that Jesus has a favor towards those that are most like us and maybe he's gonna save those or maybe Jesus is just gonna save those and use me to reach those that I'm comfortable with, right? So, so Jesus, I'll do whatever you want as long as I'm comfortable. Jesus, I'll tell whoever you want as long as I know them. Or or Jesus, I'll tell whoever, whatever you want, as long as I can leave in three days. I'm only going to tell somebody about you that lives 500 miles or on the other side of the planet. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. The fields are white right where you are. People need to know about Jesus. Do you know who can be saved? Yeah, everyone. Everyone who believes. And if we're really, really honest with ourselves, that's a lot more people than we think. Because <laughs> there's a whole bunch of things, people, and you can put the category around people that you say there's no way that God will save them. Some of them are family members. Some of them are people of other nations. But God tells us that anyone who believes will be saved. And he goes on to tell his disciples, like, you can participate in somebody's salvation. I will allow you to partner with me. You don't have to plant the seed. You don't have to water it. You don't have to grow it. That's all going on, right? You just have to be obedient to me and do what I tell you. The truth is God is working in lives of so many people that we don't even know. God is talking to so many countries, some we never even heard of, and he's speaking directly to hearts. As we heard in a testimony just two weeks ago, there was a guy at work, and a lady shares the gospel with him, and he's like, I need to learn about that. And God had been working in his heart. The harvest is right. There are countless people that are ready to put their faith in Christ. And guess what? They're not on some island that you have to travel to. Just look at your neighbors. Look at your community. The harvest is right. The fields are ready. God has been cultivating and doing works. And all his followers of Jesus have to do is constantly remove the blindness that we put on ourselves. Constantly remove the, the boxed-in idea of who we have that Jesus saves. And really believe that Jesus saves all who believe. Right? We just have to look, look up. Lift up our eyes and see 
the fields of the harvest. One pastor said this. He said there are endless opportunities to share the gospel if we would just look around. Endless opportunities to share the gospel if we would just look around. Do we really believe that he is the savior of the world? Not just the savior of people who look like me, of people who act like me. Not just the savior of good people. Not just the the savior of those who got their lives together so now Jesus will come and do the easy part because they're already good. Not just the savior of those whose morals and cultures and traditions are something that makes sense to me. Or something that maybe those cultures and traditions point them to God so they're good. But do we truly believe that he is the savior of the entire world? That he sits down with those we think are furthest from God and offers them living water? Do we really believe that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life? Or if we limit him to just be the savior of a subset of people. I want you to wrestle with that. All right, wrestle with that this week. Pray, right? I want you to pray and sincerely ask God to search your heart and to reveal in your heart who it is that you think can't be saved. Who it is that maybe you have given up on. Who it is that you have put a wall up and so you're not sharing the gospel with them. And I want you to pray that God would reveal that to you and that you would truly see Jesus as the Savior of the world. But more importantly than that, more importantly than seeing Jesus as the Savior of the world, you need to answer the question, do you see Jesus as your Savior? Right? Do you see Jesus as your Savior? That is what we need to wrestle with with too often people say oh yeah yeah, jesus is the savior of the world but he would never save me i may be really honest with you when i meet with people outside the church and they find out i'm a pastor they're like oh that's really good but there's no hope for me no there is (laughs) there is you don't know you don't know jesus and they say oh i'm too messed up he doesn't know the true me he would never ever go to the cross for somebody like me. Some of them say, well, I used to go to church. I've known him, but I've rejected him. I've walked away from him. I've said bad things about him, and he will never love me again. I, I know that he does not want to be my savior. Well, you don't know anything. Right? That is easy. I want you to listen to me. He wants to be your savior. Right? If you fall into that category, you need to know that he went to the cross with you on his brain. Right, he went to the cross, he stretched out his hands, and he was thinking of you. Jesus was God, and if you believe that, right, if you believe that Jesus was God, he was in heaven, he came down, he got crucified and tortured, and we read all about that, we just covered that all on Good Friday and Easter, not a good time, and then he ascended back into heaven, and what's the only thing he has now that he didn't have before that? You. You. He went to the cross for you. You fall into that category of whoever. Right? He's not only the savior of the world. He is your savior. He sees you. He knows you. He knows the 
deepest part of your heart. He knows that sin that you don't tell anybody because nobody would be able to forgive you. Jesus already knows about it. Right? And Jesus loves you and he welcomes you. Right? He stretched out his arms on the cross to welcome you into his family. He loves you. Yes, he is the savior of the world, but more importantly, he's your savior. More importantly, he is your savior. You need to, you need to internalize that if you're struggling with that. Right? It's, it's one thing to say, yeah, he saves all the other people. He saves this nice person. He saves my brother. You guys know my father-in-law. I say, oh yeah, Jesus, he's easy to save my father-in-law. No, 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 no. He saves you. He saved you. And as we close this time in worship, I'm going to invite the worship team, if you guys would come up here. This is what we're going to reflect on. Right? That he is your savior. And if for the first time you're accepting his invitation to be your savior, man, I want to celebrate that with you. I would love that as we are closing this time in prayer that you come up and see me and let's talk about this. Or maybe you're saying, you know what, it's time I make a public profession of my faith and maybe I've been following Jesus but I've never declared to my church family, I've never declared to the world that Jesus is my savior and I want to be baptized. Right? And if that is you, if you fall into that category, I want, I want you to come up. I'll be standing probably over there. Yeah, I don't know where I am. I'll probably be over there. And I want you guys to come up and talk to me and let's celebrate that. Let's set a time that we can celebrate with the church family, your baptism and your commitment to following Jesus. Church, Jesus is the savior of the world, right? He is the savior of all the nations. He's the savior of our city. He's the savior of our community. And by grace, through your faith, he is your savior. He is your savior. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the savior? Do you believe that he is the son of God and that by Believing in him, you have eternal life. That by believing in him, you were drinking from the cup of eternal life. You were drinking the water that he gave you. That you have life in his name. Right? If that's not you, I want to talk to you. I want to tell, tell you about Jesus. I want you to have life. I want to sit down and offer you this cup of life that Jesus was offering this woman. I want to share with you who Jesus is. But if that is you, Right, if you do believe, then I want you to join me in worship tonight, right now as we sing and we're going to worship in truth and spirit. We're gonna, some of you are going to freak out. I'm not going to close this sermon in prayer. I'm going to close this sermon as a church family that we are going to worship in truth and spirit. And the song that we are going to sing now is going to be our prayer to God. And as you sing, we believe. Maybe you just sing those first lines and you just make it personal. And as we close, you say, I believe. Right? I believe. But don't miss out on the community of believers. And when we end it, it's we believe. As we believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Savior. Not only the Savior of the world, He is my Savior. And do you believe? Worship with us.